This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Produced by the iLab at WBUR Boston. The universe has good news for the lost, lonely, and heartsick. The Sugars are here, speaking straight into your ears. I'm Steve Allman. I'm Cheryl Strayed. This is Dear Sugars. Oh, dear son, won't you please Share some little sweet days with me So, Cheryl, I was reading uh, two things in conjunction, uh, reading letters from our inbox and also just happened to read this story that was in The New Yorker recently, uh, some months ago, called FAQ, like Frequently Asked Questions, by the writer Allegra Goodman, whose work I love. And it was really such a brilliant story. And I sort of just could see in my little brain this connection to all these letters we started to receive at Dear Sugars. The story deals with this young woman who returns home from college and she's sort of seemingly adrift. The way the story is presented, and it's brilliant in this sense, is that the parents are very concerned. They have all these anxieties about whether their their child is depressed. She doesn't seem to be taking action. When's she going to get back to school, get back on track and so forth? And as the story progresses in a way that good fiction has of sort of defamiliarizing us, making us see the world in a new way, what we actually come to see is that the parent's vigilance is a form of neediness, that it's a kind of dependence that they have on their child. And what she realizes at the end is that she has to liberate herself. And what's so interesting, the connection I made to the letters that we're getting in our inbox is that a lot of people uh, from both directions, parents and kids, are struggling with this question of, when do I stop paying for my kin? Right. Uh, as parents and as kids, how long should I be on the family dole? And it's become so much murkier in our generation. You and I grew up in a time where I think for many young people, it was just understood when you're 18, you're not entirely on your own, but you're mostly on your own. You're not coming home to live. But I feel like now our letter writers from both directions are struggling with this feeling of when do I stop being a son or daughter and become an adult? Yeah, I'm not sure I, I agree with you that it's an entirely new paradigm. I agree that when you and I were 18, 19, 20, there was a greater social stigma for you to move home and live in, in your parents' basement or, you know, in, in your old bedroom. Um, that's now much more socially accepted than it was. And yet I do think that this dynamic has always existed. I mean, you and I have talked on this show about many of our peers uh, receiving money from their parents still, you know, sometimes in the form of, you know, private school tuition for the grandkid or, you know, like right. a little, you know, I, I have friends who are like my age who 
who receive like a monthly little stipend from their parents still. So I think that it's gotten money and family and those financial cords between us and our kin have gotten very complicated. Right. Why don't I read the first letter? Yeah. Dear Sugars, as a 26-year-old graduate student, I consider myself lucky to have parents willing to support me as I continue my education and work towards a career. However, I find myself wrestling with the tension of asserting my independence given my parents' desire to be financially responsible for some aspects of my life. I earn enough on my research stipend to afford a modest lifestyle, and I'm happy with my life apart from my parents. Increasingly, it feels like they're holding me in limbo with the lingering finances they refuse to let me take on myself. These items are down to remaining on their cell phone plan, continuing to drive their old car, and paying for my car insurance. On one hand, I would love to say thank you but no thank you, and simply leave the car at their house and purchase my own cell phone and cut the cord. On the other hand, I value having a good relationship with my parents, not only for my sake, but also for their happiness. When I've brought up paying for these things myself, my dad will scoff and say something condescending like, maybe in a couple years. Or he'll snort when I refer to myself and my 29-year-old sister as his adult children. Fights have escalated among us when I so much as try to pay for a round of drinks when I'm with them, as they view my income as paltry compared to theirs. The situation is complicated in that my older sister is often unemployed. She lives at home and is very much okay with my parents paying her way. I live in another state and only deal with these issues when I'm home for visits. I feel like it's easier to avoid conflict for the short time we're together. I want to have a relationship with my parents in which they recognize me as an adult, but I fear that, barring marriage, they'll never make the transition. The judgments they pass on my behavior and life choices, everything from visiting friends while I'm home to getting an IUD, are amplified by the power they derive from the money they still invest in my life. They were married by my age and had independent careers and apartments. My life path is a bit more winding than theirs. With at least three years ahead of me in school, I won't have the stability they want for me anytime soon. How can I develop a relationship of mutual respect with my parents? How can I wean myself off their financial involvement without ruining our current relationship? How can I navigate the mess of discrepancies between how me and my sister relate to my parents and their finances? Signed, confused and frustrated emerging adult. Yeah, see, so this is a letter that I was specifically thinking about uh, when I read this Allegra Goodman story. One line stood out here where you say, uh, you know, with at least three years ahead in school, I won't have the stability they want from me anytime soon. Over and over in this letter, the question is, well, what do they want and how do they see things? And the question for you is, wait a second, what about the stability you want? Maybe if in exchange for a little bit of financial instability, you gain a sense of volition and control of your life, a little bit more independence. I think you're waiting for your parents to say it's okay for you to be an adult. And you need to be able to say it's okay for me to be an adult to say I'm not ruining our current relationship, I'm redefining it. And in this version of our relationship, I really appreciate that you want to pay for my car insurance. I really appreciate that you want to help me out in these ways, but I'm not taking that help because I'd rather do it myself. Uh, the, the reason I think you'll find this short story I mentioned so uh, comforting is because the young woman has to realize something that really is in a way kind of seditious, which is my parents are dependent on me and they're not going to break the cycle. And so I have to be the adult in the room and break the cycle. 
Yeah, Steve, I, I, I can't say it better. I think that the very simple and straight answer to your question is that, you know, the way to convince them that you're an adult is to simply be an adult. Yeah, yeah. And adults don't ask permission. If they want to have their own cell phone plan and pay for it themselves, they do that. And so what you do is you go out and get a new cell phone and, and get your own plan in your own name and you pay the bill and you do the same with the car and the car insurance. And you're not the one uh, doing something wrong by making those choices. If your parents respond with anger at those choices, they, you know, they need to contend with that themselves and deal with those consequences. I think it's perfectly reasonable to cut those ties and you should just do it. This is a crazy association, but I was just thinking about this moment as you were talking, Cheryl. I've told you the story of like Aaron and I eloping. You know, by that time she was in her early 30s and she had a complicated relationship with her parents. But when we announced that we had eloped uh, and by the way, she was pregnant and they were going to be grandparents, uh, you know, her father, I, I still remember the expression on his face. He was just crestfallen and he kept saying, I don't believe it. I want to see a marriage license. I don't right. believe it. And my mom, God bless her. She very quietly w walked over to him and said, and just, you know, set her hand on him and, and looked him in the eye and said, it's, it's tough to see your little girl grow up. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that's it. She just saw that inside every big, especially because the dad sounds like the locus of this, you know, for you, confused and frustrated, it's like your dad, really, who you're mentioning in this letter as the person who's kind of scoffing at the idea of your adulthood. Underneath all that, I'm the big daddy is a is a little boy, mm -hmm. or at least somebody who's terribly afraid that you don't need him and who measures his own worth in the world by your dependence. And that's a tough cycle to break, but it's really crucial to your sense of self that you do so, not with any rancor, but with the recognition that, you know, you're going to have to define for him a different relationship. And that's probably going to be uncomfortable for him, but necessary. Yeah. And I think, you know, there is a way to say very directly confused, uh, listen, I do need you. And here's what I need. I need your love. I need your support. I need your advice when I seek it. Right. I need, you know, all of the things that, that parents really give us that, that, you know, those power, that powerful bond that you, that you don't ever want to cut. And, you know, the other thing we keep saying, talk to them, tell them this. I would also consider the possibility of, you know, writing them a letter. Sometimes, in my life when I've had to say the kind of big thing yep. and that I know that I'm maybe not going to be heard uh, because the person will react emotionally in the moment, I've written instead a considered letter. And, you know, you know your parents better than, than we do, but th that could be a way to really fully express the nature of uh, what you're doing when you decide to cut your parents off, you know, cut that sort of money feedback <laughs> off. Like, right. you know, I think this is a real thing and you simply need to take action and explain yourself to these very important people as lovingly as possible. Mm. And, you know, they need their reign as your sort of financial providers needs to come to an end. Mm -hmm. If you do write a letter, which I think is a great idea, you might recognize their lives, the different paths, as you've obviously thought about that they took, mm -hmm. how your life is different from theirs, but in some ways how you want what they got, which is to establish your own life and your own sense of selfhood in which you come to them, not for money, not for the car insurance, not for the phone plan, but because you really want their counsel, you right. want their support. And, and you mentioned 
confuse this dynamic with the sister, which absolutely makes it a little more complicated. But this is a great uh, practice for you to really recognize that boundary. You are not your sister. She has made different choices. She has a different life. Uh, just because she's financially dependent and comfortable with that doesn't mean that you need to be. And so you can differentiate yourself. So, you know, step into that and own it and don't ask anyone for permission to do it. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me on point for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future, five special episodes. Listen and follow On Point wherever you get your podcasts. So we're back and we're going to talk to a guest about a different dynamic. This is, I think, maybe the more traditional one we think about when we think about that financial cord that exists between parent and child. And that is the frustration of the parents who are saying, how long do I have to keep paying for this stuff? Yeah, exactly. So we're going to have on the show, I'm super psyched about this show, Kate Gale is the founder and managing editor of Red Hen Press. She's also the editor of the Los Angeles Review and she writes wonderful poetry, nonfiction librettos. She also writes her current project is On the Eighth Day, the story of her cult upbringing. And the reason that I especially was fascinated to talk with her is she's writing an opera, like all of us who are just busy writing operas. She's writing an opera about young men who live in their parents' garage. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. I think she's the perfect guest. Exactly. Let's give her a call. Let's do it. Hello. Hi, it's Steve Allman. I'm here with Cheryl Strayed. Hi, Kate. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? Good. So Steve just uh, read your glorious bio and uh, told us about this opera you're writing. But today, the reason we're calling you, Kate, is we're talking about how to cut that financial cord. It's something a lot of people struggle with in various directions with family relations. Absolutely. So so tell us about your, your own experience. You're uh, uh, in addition to everything else, you do a mom of two. And what was their path like towards financial independence, if they have even reached that hallowed state? Well, um, my daughter um, has a master's, um, but when she was in her 20s, she was still on my phone plan. She had a gas card and, of course, on my health care um, and car insurance. So I told her a year in advance that at 26, when she was on her own health plan, that she was also going to have to be paying all those other bills. So she had a year to think about this and make it happen, which she did. So you told her at when she was 25? Yes. Okay, when you're 26, this is when you need to be financially independent. Right. How right. did she respond to that when you, when you told her? Um. Actually, very well. She just she just said, that's plenty of time for me to figure everything out. And I think if I had told her next month, she would have started to panic. But since she had a year to figure it out, um, she was good. And also, I think she and I are on the same page 
in that she wants to be independent and I want her to be independent. Right. Right. What about your son? Well, so my son was a different thing. Um, when he was 19, he was doing what uh, California boys do, which is, um, you know, in a band, playing the guitar and smoking weed in my backyard. And uh, <laughs> At least he wasn't growing it in your backyard, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, that's the, well, backyard. I don't know. That might have been better. I exactly. Mean, he'd be paying for himself. Right, exactly. right? Okay. <laughs> I take that back. He should have been growing it in your backyard. <laughs> exactly. I think in, in other parts of the country, uh, the, the boys are in the basements and the attics, but here they're in the garages. And so I um, said to him, you know, this isn't acceptable. You need to either work or, or, or go to school. And he clearly wasn't inclined to either. So I said, is there anywhere you'd like to go? And he said, well, I've always wanted to go to Nepal and work at this orphanage that I know about there. And I said, consider it done. And I bought him a one-way ticket to Kathmandu and told him he could come back in a year. Um, so he went and worked at that orphanage, and when his visa ran out, he was kind of like, what next? And I was like, wow, that sounds like a personal problem. Let me know how that turns out. Um, <laughs> wow. so, so that was creating my own rite of passage for him in a way, or, or him being complicit in that. And he's become quite an adventurer. At this point, he's traveled all over the world, and right now he's teaching English in Vietnam. So I I feel like he made the boy-to-man transition because he was forced out of depending on me for everything. Right. And I think that's, there are so many things you said that interest me, but um, you use this phrase, the rite of passage. And this is something I've really thought a lot about. Um, you know, I think the, the hike I, I wrote about in my book, Wild, was right. a rite of passage. I think that there is something that goes on in our early 20s, sort of late teens, where we do need to find a way to test our own strength and test our own independence. And that's not given to us by the culture. And so we need to, to invent them ourselves. Were you conscious of that when you told your son, okay, go off and have this adventure? Well, he had this kind of epiphany at one point when I was sitting around talking with his dad and my husband. So we, the three of us all have stayed very close and raised the kids together. And my ex is in his 60s, and he said that, like, his rite of passage was avoiding Vietnam. Um, and he would also was kind of talking about how just getting laid, he needed to sort of have a job and a good set of wheels. And then my husband, who's in his 50s, was also talking about how, you know, to go on a date, he needed to kind of pull himself together. And I suddenly realized that my son didn't need to do any of that. And I realized um, we're missing a rite of passage here. Um, the boys can just be boys forever and still get the benefits of being a man, which is a set of wheels, at least enough money to get by, and getting laid. That's what you get when you grow up as a man. He's getting all of that without any rites of passage. So if I want a rite of, rite of passage for him that transitions him, I'm going to have to come up with something. Right. But you've still funded the trip to Kathmandu, right? Or, I mean, did, were you still supporting him financially while he was there? Did he earn some money um, working there or was he volunteering? So what I agreed on that first trip was I bought the ticket to get him there. And his dad said he'd buy a ticket back in a year. Um, and I said, your car insurance is costing me $100 a month. So that's how much I'm willing to give you. The rest of it you need to make yourself. So that's what happened that first year 
Um, he came back briefly and then took off for New Zealand, six months in New Zealand and a year in Australia. And at that point, he was just on his own. So he is off the family payroll um, and has been since he was like 20. Um, my daughter took longer, but she also went to graduate school. Right. And how old are your kids now? Um, they are now 26 and 27. Awesome. Mm. But it's clear, Kate, also that this this issue preoccupies you because you've written an opera about it. What's the opera about? Um, the, the opera that's tentatively called The Man in the Attic is about a woman who basically convinced her, her young lover to live in the attic for many, many years. But in my opera, I, I have a sort of chorus of boys who are all in attics and garages and basements playing video games. And when I proposed <laughs> this to the composer, Joseph Turin, that I'm working with, he said, oh, my gosh, my stepson is in my basement playing video games right now. Yeah. <laughs> well, I want to read you this letter, Kate, and get your take on it, because we, we have a, a, a father's perspective. Dear Sugars. I'm a father with two children from my first marriage and two stepchildren from my second. My question concerns my firstborn biological child, a son who will soon turn 18. Though he lives nearby with his mother, I rarely see him, in contrast to his younger sibling, who spends time with my wife and me twice a week. My son and I had a falling out two and a half years ago, at which point he elected to stop spending time with me on any regular basis. We smoothed over the roughest parts of that patch, but in all the time since, he has not spent a single night under the same roof as me. He has not spent any time at all with my parents or his step-grandparents or any aunts, uncles, or cousins in my family, and he has not gathered with the other five of us in my core family since last Christmas. When I invited him to join us for Thanksgiving dinner this year, his only response was, Sorry, I'm going to pass. My core and extended families are full of loving, kind-hearted people with room in their hearts for my son, it saddens many of us to witness his disregard for the opportunities we offer, the formation of happy memories, positive connections with our friends and those in our social networks, guidance and moral support as he enters adulthood. My legal responsibility for financially supporting my son ends next year. I could certainly opt to continue providing that support, contributing to his education, paying for his insurance, etc., but should I? Would withdrawing that support effectively demonstrate the consequences of refusing to participate in the give and take of family life? Consequences that might lead him to reconsider his self-imposed isolation from the rest of us? Or would such a move be petty, short-sighted, manipulative, and more likely to be counterproductive? I love my son dearly. At this point, though, he and I are acquaintances, buddies sometimes when we get together for a movie or some other fun activity. I've got lots of friends and acquaintances that I get together with on occasion, and I don't provide basic financial support for any of them. Given my son's choices, is there any reason I should treat him any differently as he becomes an adult? Sincerely, father of three, acquaintance of one. Oh boy. <laughs> I, I, mean, I, I think it's such a fascinating letter too. because it's and Kate, I want to hear you respond to this, but he's really uh, kind of burrowing past all of our sentimental ideas and saying, well, hold on a second here. Yeah. If this, if we're going to define relationships in terms of their emotional and psychological content, he's an adult, he's an acquaintance. I don't pay for my other acquaintances. But he's not an acquaintance. He's That's your not. son. You know, father, he's your son. One thing, Kate, before you got on the phone, we, we discussed a letter 
uh, from a 26-year-old woman who whose parents didn't want to sort of stop giving her money. And we were saying one of the things that occurred to me is that, you know, that their generosity uh, wasn't really generosity. It was an exertion of power. And Father, this comes to mind also when I contemplate your letter, because basically what you're saying is, yeah. I'll pay you if you're nice to me. Um, right. And if I don't get to have that power over you, that you're going to come and spend Thanksgiving with me and, and you know, be essentially the the kind of um, open-hearted communicator that I that I want you to be, then I'm not going to pay. And I do think that um, that that's a mistake. I absolutely understand why you're pained about your relationship with your son. I think that that's very hard. But I would really strongly encourage you to um, separate your financial obligations to him, which you do have. Those mm-hmm. are two different problems, and one of them is easily solved, and that is be a father to him. Be a father to him with your money, um, even if you can't right now be the father to him you want to be in your emotional relationship with him. That's so interesting, Cheryl. I mean, the father of three is, in a way, offering a model of fatherhood and what it should offer to kids or parenthood that the father of our last letter writer, Confused, could use because he's not saying, I want economic control over this kid's life. I want him to be dependent on me. He's saying, I want to be emotionally involved with him. I don't just want to be an acquaintance. I want to be able to provide him the kinds of human, emotional and psychological familial support that I think will help him into adulthood. So I totally agree that it's the wrong tactic, but I think the strategy is pretty healthy. What he wants from his son is to have a deeper relationship and to be able to help him in ways that don't feel monetary as he's entering adulthood. What do you think, Kate? Well, um, I think that we get to know our kids as kids for usually about 20 years. And if you're extremely fortunate, you get to know them as adults for 40 years. And how you play, how that 20 years plays out determines whether you even get to have the 40 years. So to me, the fact that this the son is being a bit of a punk when he's a teenager just seems as a parent of kids that are in their mid twenties, it seems so irrelevant. My two classic stories that I remember of my son is he said to his dad once, um, dad, I just want you to know that you were born a douchebag and you'll die a douchebag. <laughs> and wow. his dad said, so many people would agree with you on that, but you're still going to need to do your homework. Um, <laughs> And he said to Mark, his stepdad at one point, Mark, the problem with you is you think you're the alpha male around here. So my point is that um, in, in our household, I have two stepsons and one son. All three of the boys were punks to their dads at, during a lot of the time until they were about 20. And the dads just wrote it out because your job as an adult is not to turn off and on the love faucet. It's to be an adult. Mm-hmm. And that means... You're the parent. Acting like a parent means you continue to love this person as much as you can and continue to be there for them and hope they grow up. Um, I mean, this dad loves his, his son, and I think if he hangs in there, the son will outgrow being a punk. Um, it's possible that he won't, but it, it, seems, it seems given all this love, much more likely that he will. And the thing about the, uh, the friendship is... I absolutely agree that if we are mentally healthy, that you don't have friends who don't respect you. That's a given. But that's not the same with your kids. Your kids Hmm. are sometimes going to disrespect you. 
Right. And um, I think you hope that by the time they're an adults that you have a mutually respectful relationship. Yeah. yeah. You know, there is a difference, I think, between talking about financially supporting an 18-year-old and uh, and even like a 23-year-old or a 26-year-old. Right. They can't usually just leap right into financial independence. And so I'm curious, Kate, if you want to give father and other listeners any feedback about, you know, how to go through this process um, beginning at 18 where you are giving all of this support financially to your kids and, and weaning them off of that over time? Well, I think that um, like one of the thing, things that I'll hear kids that are 18, 19, and 20 say is, you know, like I'm totally on my own. <laughs> you're not totally on your own if your parents are paying for your dorm room or apartment and your tuition. You're not even on your own at all. You just happen to not be living under your parents' roof. So I always said to my kids, when you are on your own, it's when you can walk across the street and buy me an ice cream cone. Um, As in, you're paying all of your own bills and you could share back with the family. Um, So I decided that I really wanted independent kids. And it wasn't just that I don't want to have to take care of them. It's that I like independent people. And I think that that's one of the questions that parents need to ask themselves is, who am I going to know for the next 40 years? Someone who's asking me for help every time they turn around, who can't figure out anything on their own, or someone who solves their problems and this planet's problems, and it's got some. Um, so that that's what I wanted, and I felt like at 18 I started this, well, I mean, even when they were in high school, I started this conversation about um, becoming independent and being on your own and being able to take care of yourself and other people. Um, in your community. So I, I think that um, at the point kids are in high school, talking to them about the fact that they're going to be independent and moving toward that. So making steps towards independence early is a good thing, um, unless you really want to have someone who's dependent on you the rest of your life. And I think that's not an ideal for the kid. Yeah. Right. Kate, thank you so much for joining us. It's been really a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, thank you. And we better get tickets to that opera. <laughs> Definitely. We'll, br- we'll bring our ungrateful children. He lives <laughs> in the <Okay>. basement. <laughs> He's just if you a need mom. a singer, just let me know. Steve and I would could do a, a duet. Okay. Um, yeah. We're we're both one one thing that like nobody knows about us is that we're both incredibly good singers. Okay. Yeah. Hi, listeners. We're taking a few weeks off for the holidays, but we'll be back with a new episode of Dear Sugars in the new year. Talk to you then. Dear Sugars is produced by the New York Times in partnership with WBUR. Our producer is Alexandra Lee Young. Our editor and managing producer is Larissa Anderson. Our executive producer is Lisa Tobin. And our editorial director is Samantha Hennig. We recorded the show at Argo Studios in New York City. Our mix engineer is Josh Rogerson. Our theme song is by Liz Weiss, and other music is by the Portland band called Wonderly. Find us at nytimes.com slash dearsugars. And please send us your letters at dearsugars at nytimes.com. That's dearsugars, plural, at nytimes.com. If you want to read another letter on this topic, check out our column in the styles section or at nytimes.com slash the sweet spot. Dear Sugars.